I will trust Brexit focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Hello and welcome to the Hollywell podcast, the Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined as ever by Paul. Good to see you, Paul. Hi, Jared. So this is the eighth in our series looking at Brexit and the impact that it might have in the Northwest. And at the outset, as always, thanks to our funders uh, for this particular podcast. It's the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland. And Hollywell Trust's own core funders uh, are the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland, Derry City and Strabane District Council, and we also received support from the Ireland Funds and the Department of Foreign Affairs. This month's episode is slightly different than usual. We've got two longer in-depth interviews with Jane Morris and Seamus Lehaney. So do you maybe just want to tell us why we've gone with a slightly different format this month? It seemed to me that uh, the, the level of complexity about what's happened about Brexit over the last month meant that really it would be useful to have a chat with two of the, the best commentators on Brexit. Mm-hmm. Now Seamus deals with the freight industry for Northern Ireland and therefore because his members are so affected he is well up to speed and has very good insights about what's happening and what's likely to happen. Uh, Jane Morris is the former uh, European Commission head for Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's also probably well known to listeners as a former Women's Coalition Assembly member, former Deputy Speaker of Northern Ireland Assembly, and she's uh, also the former Vice President and current member of the European Economic and Social Committee. So she is basically as aware of the internal workings of the European Commission of anyone in the whole of Northern Ireland. So Mm -hmm. Jane's able to give us, and Seamus is able to give us, basically the best analysis of what's happening in Brexit of anyone in Northern Ireland. Before then, a brief summary of a really quiet month in Brexit land, I have to say. The only things that have happened are, uh, as far as I can see, the UK government released its white paper, the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union, which prompted the resignation of several senior Tory figures, including David Davis and Boris Johnson. We then had close votes in the House of Commons on Brexit issues, suspension of Ian Paisley, which might affect future votes in the autumn. John Major, former Conservative PM, stating that a second Brexit referendum would be reasonable. As well as that, we've had Theresa May's confirmation that she will be leading on the Brexit negotiations and the Amazon chief Doug Gurr protecting civil unrest if there's a no-deal Brexit. So, apart from that, Paul, it's been relatively quiet. Yeah, yeah. Just to, in case anyone didn't quite pick it up, you're being sarcastic. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like <laughs> slight tone there. All yeah, right. we, we have complete chaos, really. It's not <laughs> a, a clear government policy. The white paper was published, in which, amazingly enough, Theresa May said that we've now got a united country around Brexit. Well, clearly we haven't. We haven't even got a united government around Brexit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the moves uh, announced in the white paper would not be acceptable to the European Commission. Despite that, they were also not acceptable to other parts of the Conservative Party, hence the difficulties mm. she has had with government ministers resigning. I mean, just to stress this point, as far as the European Commission is concerned, Brexit is one of the issues it's dealing with. It's probably not as important as trade relationships with the United States, for example, mm. and also possibly not as important as the migrant crisis that's uh, spurred by uh, the new Italian government. So as far as the European Commission is concerned, Brexit negotiations must not interfere with its other policy agenda, which is led by its need to keep Italy, Austria, Hungary, Poland, 
uh, Slovakia and the Czech Republic on board because in each of those countries there are political pushes towards them leaving the European Union. Mm. So the priority from the European Commission's point of view, as much as anything, is it must not give the UK a better deal than it got by staying in the European Union because otherwise it's giving the green light to all these other member states that actually, why don't they leave as well? And then you've got the... the, the, Basically, you've got the European Union completely unravelling. So that's trying to put things from the European Commission's point of view. And I'm sure you get under this. And first, we're going to hear from Jane. We listen first to Jane Morris. Do you have a burning question or query regarding Brexit? Then contact us via email at brexit at hollywelltrust.com or tweet us at hollywellt or leave us a message on our Facebook page and Paul will try and address that issue in a future episode. Where are we headed for, in your opinion, in terms of the, the, the apparent near collapse of negotiations between the European Commission and the UK government? Let's go back to the issue, the, the main issue, because they say 80% has been concluded, 20% mm. l- yes. left, and that's Irish border, right, is the 20%. Well, Irish border plus trade arrangements, yes. Yeah, well, that's, yes, it's, it's border arrangements, if you like. Mm. So that's the one. And the Commission has made the offer of the backstop. You've heard this, of course. Mm. And, uh, in fact, it's strange that it's called a backstop. That's a new word for it. I mean, is it a fallback is a better description mm, of it? Mm, mm. But anyway, whatever it is, that's what I was originally thinking was the best thing. It's too simple to solve the problem. It but means you... it means not no border in the Irish Sea. Mm. It means customs and immigration at ports and airports. And that could be London mm. or, or Londonderry or Liverpool or, mm. or Larne, all the L's if you like. But it's not the Irish Sea. But it does seem as if the UK government has withdrawn its support. Well, now that's getting into politics, and that's a place I don't want to go, because I think it's much, much more important to get pragmatic answers rather than political. Although I did say a political answer is the way forward. I understand that, but but, uh, my interpretation of the House of Commons votes is that the House of Commons has not supported retaining support for the backstop. I have huge admiration for the negotiating ability of the European Commission, European Union. Just stop for one minute and think what it has done. After World War One and World War Two, they sat down and they worked out a way of making peace in Europe between two warring factions. Not two, all more. And you know, and they and they tied up the coal and steel community and they and they sat down and they created the European Union, original six, then nine, then twelve, and then now twenty-eight. You know, don't underestimate them. I know that there are there are people who are saying things like, Oh, it's gonna it's gonna fall apart and uh, you know, if well, this happens. That is a load of I'm not even gonna use the word because it's too bandy nonsense. You know, uh People are underestimating the huge ability of the European Union to have got where it, where it is now and to get over this in the best way possible. They will find, and now that, that's me answering in a big way your question, which maybe doesn't give it. Well, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, the, that Brexit leads to the destruction of the European Union. What I am suggesting is that the European Commission is trying to negotiate with a side that is very divided. I don't see how you can get a solution in terms of something that's acceptable to both sides of the House 
of Commons, both sides of the Conservative Party, which is also acceptable to the European Commission. I mean, to be blunt, I don't see anything which is acceptable to both sides of the Conservative Party. Well, it looked as if the backstop was pretty acceptable in December. Yes, but not now. And I don't think we should be negotiating here now, or even putting ideas. But I think if we started looking at the value for Northern Ireland of it staying in the EU, you know, the benefits we would get. I mean, I'm talking about here, you know, if so if Northern Ireland stayed in the EU, there wouldn't be a border problem, right? Because the customs and immigration would be at ports and airports, and that could be ports south of the border as well as north. But if you look at what we get, Erasmus Student Exchange, Horizon 2020, research for universities, huge money for that, even our regional funds and our social funds, unemployment, um, ports and, you know, look at the funding we've got for ports and airports. And, you know, maybe people think there's too many roundabouts and a lot of them have been European funded, but that's stuff and apart from the peace programme. So look at all the benefits we've got that we're going to lose if we leave. And I use that word rather than when. If people can be persuaded, particularly the community sector, the community and voluntary sector, because of the benefits they've had from the European Union, I'd love to hear more people shouting about what they're going to lose. And of course there is another element to that, which is the fact that we've got many people who were born in Northern Ireland who've chosen to have Irish identities, Irish passports, and there is an absolute lack of clarity about what the rights of those people who are Irish nationals living in Northern Ireland, what rights they have after Brexit, for example, will they continue to have at the ability to use the European Health Insurance Card, mm. will they be able to identify themselves as Irish-European citizens in many other ways? There's a lack of clarity about that, in fact. Well, interesting enough, I, I would say there isn't a lack of clarity because there's absolutely no way that people who have Irish or British and Irish passports can be refused European citizenship. So there's no, there's no lack of clarity there. But, but, and so they have all is, the rights. Well, there is a lack of clarity about what European citizenship gives to people. So, for example, if you look on the Irish government website about the European Health Insurance Card, it is available to people who live within the European Union, not people who are European citizens. You mean a German living in England? can't use the health card. Uh, according to that interpretation. Dare I say the Irish government's wrong? <laughs> no, I wouldn't, because I'm sure that they've done their homework. They can't possibly deny the rights of a citizen, depending on where they live. What is the definition of citizenship? What we've seen in the last few days is an awful lot of confusion, a low, awful lot of harsh words, really, where people have perhaps been saying things above and beyond where we are actually. I mean, there's a sense perhaps that people are bluffing, that they're actually putting things in more stark terms than actually are. I mean, do you think there's any validity in that view about what's happened? It's, it, it's shocking, first of all, but the European Union is extremely complex, extremely hard to understand how it works, uh, what it does, it's such a large and important organisation. And yet to try and, and give it the 30-second sound bites that it's getting these days is wrong. The first big problem with the European Union is it doesn't communicate properly. Mm. So maybe it needs to learn the 30-second sound bite culture. It actually sort of, it, I call it it, but certainly there are those in Brussels who sort of see the American style as not theirs, they're Europeans. But I do often argue, especially 
as former Vice President for Communication, that definitely the EU needs to speak the language of the people in the street. And in a sense, just to interrupt you a second, I mean, my perception is that the Brexit vote in England in particular was perhaps to an extent about this clash of cultures between the Anglo-Saxon way of doing things and the European cultures. Gosh, fascinating, and that that's, that sort of sounds like a grandiose way of putting it, but probably yes. Now, I don't know whether you mentioned, I, I used to be the head of the European Commission office in Northern Ireland, mm. and that was 92 to 97 or something like that. That was a very, very interesting time and, and uh, to understand the different approach in Northern Ireland in particular towards the European Union. There were those who considered themselves European and those who considered themselves the total opposite. Mm. <laughs> and I won't go into the, the, the political detail of that, but I think it's quite obvious. Mm. Yes, there's no doubt that the UK's attitude towards the European Union has always been semi-detached. Mm. In fact, I even heard a report on the BBC recently, such and such is going to Europe mm. from mm. Belfast. Mm. And I'm feeling like saying, we're in Europe. Mm. And I think this is a, a very common problem is that we've never considered ourselves to be in Europe yes. from here. Which is the big difference between the North and the South, because the South has become much more European, where England in particular resisted becoming European. Yes, and that's another one that I complain about, and I don't shout loud enough. I'd be driving behind a, a massive truck importing, exporting goods, and it says, we deliver to the UK, Ireland and Europe, mm. written on the side of the truck. Mm. And that includes Ireland, you see. That's mm. just putting UK and Ireland outside of that mm. circle. I'm not sh- so sure whether, you know, the whole attitude down south, of course, but, but obviously they are much, much more European for a whole host of reasons, quite apart from the fact that they got very, very good support in the early days mm. from European funds. But now that they're coming close to going to be a net contributor to the Mm. EU budget is going to be a very new way of looking at things. And of course they've had their own referendum and all of that. Uh, So there isn't as much certainty that all Irish are feeling very European or not, Mm. but um, certainly there's a a difference. But to go back to this point, where are we today, do you think? I mean, we've got statements increasingly harsh on both sides, from the UK, also from the Irish government and from the European Commission leadership in terms of the fact that we're we're heading, it seems, for a hard Brexit. There doesn't seem to be any room for manoeuvre, even within the Conservative Party, in terms of the... bringing together the two wings of the Conservative Party, let alone achieving an outcome that's acceptable to the House of Commons and also acceptable to the European Commission. I mean, where is the the scope for compromise, do you think? This term, hard Brexit, is being, uh, hard Brexit or no deal Brexit, these are terms that are being bandied around and nobody actually knows what they mean. Mm. It's a bit like Brexit means Brexit. Hard Brexit means hard Brexit. Mm. No deal means no deal. What on earth does any of that mean? Mm. That's my first point. My second point is, I think I would contend that the EU, through the Commission negotiator and the offer of Northern Ireland staying in the single market and in the customs union, is a very, very good offer to Northern Ireland. Mm. Because 
you know, some people say, oh, we can't have that, we can't have our cake and eat it, but we can. And my line is, not only can we have our cake and eat it, but it's our bread and butter and we deserve it in Northern Ireland. And, and you put forth a petition arguing for exactly that, of course. Exactly. I'm, in fact, I want to go further than Northern Ireland staying in the single market and the customs union. I want us to stay in the European Union as part of the UK. Hmm. And I definitely, definitely say that clearly because there's no question that the people of Northern Ireland want to stay in the UK and want to stay in the European Union. Mm. You know, so why not? What I perceive to be the hard Brexit, which is that we've now got a new Secretary of State for Brexit, which is Dominic Raab. And Dominic Raab has said that if there's no deal, then the UK doesn't pay the agreed exit fee. Okay, so that's the first element of it. Potentially, it means that you have customs controls on the border in some way or another. And thirdly, it means that we don't have any prioritised trade deal with the European Union. So that, to me, is what a hard Brexit is. And the question then is, pragmatically, are the ways that we can avoid that which keeps the European Commission happy and keeps together enough of the Conservative Party that they can live with? I have to admit, from the outset, being unsure of the detail, because I think I think the way to look at this is the political people need to have give political guidance and it's up to the immigration officials and the customs officials to work out the paperwork mm. of, you know, what do you do with your tax return? What do you do with your VAT? What do you do with your with your visas? This isn't for us to discuss in something like this. It's far, far too complicated to understand. Mm. So if the checkers deal, which is more or less keeping customs and, and single market, as I understand mm. it, I also understand that Brussels is going to find this difficult to accept because they've always said no cherry picking. But even the Czechos proposals are actually not acceptable to the European Commission and they're also not acceptable for the opposite. But you're saying that you're saying that you're saying that as if not you know not acceptable. Nothing's not acceptable. Mm. Everything is negotiable. All right maybe everything is negotiable but if the European Commission accepted the Czechos proposals that basically the UK could stay in broadly the single market for goods and to stay in the customs union and wouldn't have to pay continued membership fees to the European Union, wouldn't have to accept freedom of movement. Why on earth would Italy, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia want to stay in the European Union if the UK got that type of deal which would be very attractive to them by staying in? You're right. And that is because, in fact, and this is another mistake we all make, is thinking that Barnier and the European Commission is the one that decides. It's every single one of the 27 other member states. So yes, it's it's the 27 member states, but it's also the European Commission, whose priority surely is more about keeping the rest of the 27 together inside the European Union than it is about doing something that's good for the UK, however good that is also for the EU27 in trade terms. Of course, of course. And and you've heard all an awful lot of the comments coming out of Brussels is, you know, solidarity mm. is the big, big thing there. And that's and that's what they want really to push more than anything else. And it's in a very important principle uh, in, in, in European Union is togetherness. Mm. You know, even the word solidarity isn't very common in our parliament. No, that's an interesting not. point, yes. Uh, you know, togetherness is another, is a, is a, is a way to describe it maybe, but solidarity, it's, 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 it's great. It's a very, very important principle to them. And that's what's guiding them when it comes to what it... But there's another thing. There's no question that there's disappointment on continental Europe about what's happened with Brexit. In other words, if the UK voted to have 
agreed to have a second referendum and agreed that the outcome was to rejoin, then actually the EU would be very happy about that. But that doesn't mean they're going to roll over and agree to everything the UK wants <laughs> if the UK ends up getting a better deal by leaving than it would by staying in. <laughs> it's Of course it's not going to roll over. But if there's a change of heart, I mean, the comments that have come out said, you know, open arms, you're, mm. you know, you're come back, back in. And it's another fascinating thing there is Article 49. Mm. Uh, we had a very valuable meeting with uh, the representatives of the UK in Brussels within the last month. I was saying, is Article 49 on the table? Because article, everyone's talking Article 50 and everyone knows what Article 50 is. But Article 49 is the way by which you can get back in. Mm. And that's actually, when I look at the whole situation we're in my way of describing it is I would prefer not to have a divorce I think the preference is to have a separation giving us time to settle our differences and then to get back together for the sake of the children and in a sense that is the compromise that could be available which is to say we defer article 50 being triggered and then talk more and more and more and come to a more sensible and friendly relationship. I must admit, as an observer, I feel very concerned that Theresa May introduced a war cabinet for negotiating exit with the European Union. That seems to me to put together the completely wrong terminology. You know, you want a friendly separation, not a war and a war cabinet. But I actually haven't heard that phrase, war cabinet. I didn't know that's what it was. And Perhaps I, I read the English papers rather than <laughs> right, <laughs> not right, just right, the right, Irish right, papers. Right. Yes. Or the Europe- oh, well, yes. European, that's right. Yes. English are European, it's still. Mm. People say, oh, the way Juncker treated Cameron didn't give him anything. And this, this sort of stuff that mm. we are hearing in mm. the tabloid press, mm. you know, it's not that way. Juncker did offer Cameron very important concessions back then, but the press... He didn't do enough to tell the UK what he'd got. Mm. And secondly, the press did the dirty. Mm. I mean, really, the, the, the press and the media have really led the fore in this, in the anti-European rhetoric, you know, the up yours, Delors. And I'm actually shocked. Jack Delors, he should be, he should be held, held on a pedestal in Northern Ireland for what he did here mm. for us. Mm. I have been very close to him. He's just passed his birthday, and I actually don't know, I think it's 93, I'm not sure. He should get a huge acclaim, like honorary doctorates or bigger than that for Northern Ireland, mm. because he was the founder of the peace programme here. Mm. And it's now put two billion euros into cross-community and cross-border mm. projects in this province. Mm. So people say about being in the European Union has helped the peace process, and yes, of course, in terms of the border, the single market, Ireland and UK being equal, those things are very important in, in, in our membership of the European Union. But on top of that, what Jack Delors did in the peace programme, was he stepped way outside of the European norm and set up a peace programme in Northern Ireland, which now is described as one of the best of all the EU peace programmes. Mm. And really the work it's done bringing people together is huge. And, and should get much more acclaim. But there's an irony there, isn't there, which is the European Union helped bring people together within Northern Ireland, though we hear, and I've interviewed people that say some of that harmony is being fractured by the Brexit oh, yes. conversations, where there's new tensions between different communities within Northern Ireland, which is clearly very tragic and potentially much worse than that. But at the same time, the European Union hasn't been able to bring its members together in a way that kept the UK on board. 
Well, I suppose what I would, I, 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 I think I've referred first of all to its serious lack of communicating with mm. the, engaging with citizens. Mm. Definitely needs, and, and in fact that's something that I am talking about when I'm in Brussels now, is learning the lessons of Brexit, mm. which is, they've been talking about engaging with citizens for a long time, but they mm. haven't done enough. Mm. And it's not just communication policy. It's about actually getting into into the street and showing what the good that the EU does. I mean, for example, I would I would see a huge announcement, three million funding from peace program, and in the corner of the of the article, there's a tiny wee stars and, and uh, European flag. And that's a very important point, isn't it? Because, for example, with things like the roaming charges, limitations that the European Union introduced and imposed on members, the UK government has claimed the credit for it and failed to recognise publicly that actually it's European Union legislation that brought that benefit to the UK consumers. Yes, the blame, if you like. Mm. I see three places responsible. First, I definitely think UK government, respective uh, UK governments, always said, always blamed Brussels for the bad stuff and claimed the credit for the good stuff for themselves. That is a well-known factor. An awful lot of, an awful lot of countries do mm. that. Mm. And that's something that needs to be halted somehow. Mm. The next one is uh, the European institutions themselves. Because I do think all the charges of, of it being undemocratic, you know, I want to say, well, what, what do we vote for every five years if it's mm. undemocratic? The European Parliament. Mm, mm, mm. You know, why, where are all the other members of the European Parliament? Why are they not being proper? You know, why is the European Parliament not doing more to, mm, show, mm. to show what they do? Plus the European Commission, plus the uh, Council, etc. And my third is, and I call them the pub- our public service broadcasters. Mm. I would blame them not naming any in particular, for 40 years of failure to inform and educate us. Mm. You get a few of our broadcasters heading for Strasbourg and, and, and like David Attenborough finds a new species, which mm. is the European Parliament. We should have been educated about the role of Europe in, in the 40 years by our public service broadcasters mm. in the 40 years since we joined. Mm. And also in our education system, there's another huge problem. We learn more about wars than we do about peace. Mm. You know, we know the Neapolitan Wars and the World Wars, of course, but we know nothing about peace builders. Jay Morris, thank you very much indeed. It's very helpful, very enlightening. Thank you. The Highwell Podcast Brexit Focus, funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on soundcloud.com Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. I'm now sitting in a rather noisy Belfast Central Rail Station cafe to take the opportunity to speak to Seamus Lahini, who is the policy manager for the Freight Transport Association and actually one of the keenest observers of the Brexit situation that there is in Northern Ireland. Now, Seamus, what's your reading of where we are in this rather difficult process? Yeah, the long, um, difficult process, Paul, really, we're probably looking at now, we're, we're edging closer, I think, as every, as every development recently, it's edging us closer to a no-deal scenario. I wouldn't say we're at the point yet where we can't go back. There, there still are options for government and the EU, 
but certainly um, current progress or lack of it, the end result would, would indicate that we're looking at a new deal scenario. I mean, there is an interpretation which says that people are talking up the rhetoric that's a game of bluff and that perhaps people are just putting the pressure on each other in order to get the best negotiated outcome. I mean, do you think there's any plausible value in that reading of things? Yeah, I think there, there'll definitely be some brinkmanship in this. Who'll blink first as such? Politically, you know, it, it is a political gamble by the government. Some people, I think, you know, and pro-Remain think that, you know, post-Brexit they can come out of this with a better deal than we have as members of the EU, which isn't feasible. The EU recognise that. When I speak to my colleagues in our Brussels office, um, the EU are, you know, speaking to the colleagues there, are very stern in their approach that the UK cannot come out of negotiations in a better situation than they are now. There has to be some acknowledgement, both in Westminster and more locally here in Northern Irish politics, that there's going to have to be some give as well as some take. And I think that's one of the things that people in the UK fail to fully appreciate, the, you know, the perspective from the European Commission, that actually in terms of its relationships with countries like Italy and Poland and Hungary and Slovakia and the Czech Republic, if it gives something to the UK, which the UK can say, well, actually, basically, we've still got membership of the single market and there is no freedom of movement of people, then actually the UK can say, well, actually, this has done us well leaving. And that creates a real problem for the European Commission in terms of clinging on to those other states where they've got their own domestic political issues. Yeah, 100%. You know, that, that you would set a precedent for other countries and, you know, it's, it would almost be like rewarding the spoiled child who has a, has a tantrum and giving them their way. Then everyone else is going to look at, the, at that spoiled child and say, well, we want the same as what they got. So, you know, the, the rule has to be applied fairly to everyone. It's something we have to acknowledge both uh, in, the, in the business world and, and politically. And really, I mean, the things that have been happening in the last few days in the House of Commons do seem to make it significantly more difficult to reach an outcome because, I mean, personally, I had rather assumed that there was a decent chance that actually on a cross-party basis we'd have a, a majority vote for staying in something like the Customs Union, and that was rejected just about. And we're now even more seriously in a situation where it's difficult to see, firstly, anything that's acceptable to both wings of the Conservative Party, but more fundamentally, anything that's acceptable to the government and to the European Commission stroke the EU 27 or EU 26 without Ireland. I mean, so, I mean, what's your reading of this? Is there, is there any scope for an outcome that is mutually acceptable? Yeah, you know, th there is a lack of middle ground, especially in Parliament, with regards to Brexit. You know, it's going to have to take... Some, some initiative by somebody but as you said you know between, between all the main political parties there seems to be disagreement between members of each of the parties about what's the best way forward and that can be shown within the Conservative Party we can see the end fighting there and both within Labour Party as well so you know the, the answer is you know that's a difficult one Paul if I knew the answer to that probably I could be running the country it's, it's a tough one really and it's one really it's, it's what has got us into this stalemate why there, there, there is so much uh, I suppose it's a, it's a political game at the moment in government, and I think maybe the, the, the I suppose the objectives of some people have to be questioned as well in government because Brexit may not be the the, the number one objective for some people. It could be um, political gains. It could be um, political careers um, are also being played in the current mix as well. So 
Yeah, it's a it's a tough one, but it, it's one it's because of the, the the lack of leadership and the lack of agreement in, in, in the current government has got us into this current predicament with Brexit. Now, clearly, your members, uh, Freight and I, are particularly affected by this. I mean, what's the mood within the haulage sector in Northern Ireland? I suppose the mood within the haulage sector it's quite depressing at the moment. With, when I speak to a lot of members, I spoke to a large haulier yesterday who's based in Ballymena area have a significant fleet a significant staff they do european work they do uk work and it's almost like a sense of resignation they, they realize things you know are going to get tougher for them and a lot of members who have spoken to as well from 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 all political persuasions and none all of them have said to me that brexit is a mistake um, they've also said that that disproportionately northern ireland will be affected to a greater extent than gb um, simply because of the land border and the all-island uh, supply chains that are currently in place as well. So a lot of our members will move goods and commodities across the border several times before a finished product is, is, is completed and ready for sale to the public. So I think um, at the moment, yeah, members are quite depressed about it. Politically, they're, they're not given, I suppose, um, much, much food for thought really locally. Um, I think there's a lack of leadership when it comes to Brexit and obviously a lack of agreement. Um, we have we have some political parties who are uh, sitting on red lines at the moment when it comes to Brexit, unwilling to budge, and, that, and that's all political parties. So it's this unwillingness again, which we're seeing in Parliament in Westminster, in Northern Ireland. We see it being repeated here as well: the lack of engagement, the lack of agreement. So I suppose our industry, Paul, we're going to be left with a heavy lifting with Brexit. You know, we're going to be the people who are going to move the goods in and out of Northern Ireland post March 2019. And what we're facing, we're facing probably um, multiple levels of red tape. We're going to look at extra administration costs. We're going to look at um, certificate uh, and authorization costs. Because certificate of origins, if we, if we crash out of Europe with a no-deal scenario, we're looking at WTO trading. And that's going to mean things like certificate of origins, possibly uh, EU-01 certificates, maybe even uh, TIR Kearney systems. And all these, all these documentation um, they cost anything from £40 right up to £90 per consignment. So you, you multiply that to got an SME here in Northern Ireland who might send a pallet maybe out every day maybe to a customer in the Republic. There's an extra £40 for every pallet that they're going to have to maybe incur in costs and that. And then we're looking at things in as well. If there, if there is going to be a hard border, it's not going to be feasible or practical for customs to, to check goods at every one of the crossings on the Irish border. There's 300, as, as, as we know. So you're probably going to look at maybe going down the road of designated routes. So customs, both the Irish customs and the UK customs might say, right, there's six approved crossing points in Ireland that you must use. And, and I'm not exaggerating that because in Norway and Sweden, the huge expanse of the Swedish frontier with Norway, um, there are only about, I think, about maybe about nine approved crossings that the Norwegian and Swedish authorities allow HGVs to cross. So then we're going to—that's going to add on mileage to, to distribution costs, and then you're going to have the checks on the vehicles, the physical checks. So there's going to be delays, and the running cost for HGV at the moment, we the FTA we do quarterly costings on, on, on the running costs, and it's at one pound per minute for a typical Arctic and trailer unit. So you, when you look at the administration costs, the, the extra staff required for the administration, and then you look at the additional mileage and then the waiting times, 
these are huge costs that are going to be incurred by our industry and what 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 FTA are saying to its members and, and obviously what the owners are saying is that we some we we cannot be left to absorb these costs. These costs will have to be one hundred percent passed on to the customers who then ultimately have to pass on these costs to the consumers. So we could ultimately be left with higher costs for, for produce on the shelves and shops. And when you're talking about the reduced number potentially of the border points, I suppose talking about the, the northwest, then we'd be talking about Bridgend being one of them and perhaps the next one along the border being off the ploy, something like that. You could look at that, yeah. You know, best case scenario, you might have Bridgend, maybe Lifford, and that could be it between the frontier of the mm. west of the province and Donegal. You might have two checkpoints. So someone, you know, a, a, a manufacturer based in the northwest who maybe has a customer in Moville or Greencastle, um, they would then have the additional mileage of having to drive to the Bunkrana Road, Bridgend, and going via customs there, where there is Irish Customs have an office still there for, for goods entering the Republic from outside the EU. Could be quite problematic for companies in the Northwest. And, and how are members planning for this? I'm aware of some industrial businesses that have bought land on the other side of the border, so that some businesses in Northern Ireland have got uh, potentially a second manufacturing facility in the Republic, and some organisations in the Republic, some industrial bases in the Republic are buying, the, buying land in the, in the North to mitigate the risk. I mean, how do your members mitigate the risk? A few members, most are sitting tight, be honest um, probably some are holding off maybe on some investment or expansion plans most are doing nothing which is both maybe it's wise but it's also kind of worrying as well because if we crash out of the EU um, next March um, overnight we could be left with some serious issues to, to resolve such as some of the things I outlined about the documentation processes so there might be an urgent need for staff how do we get those staff trained in time to do that and then, and then also with drivers as well, because if we are going to be left with delays at ports, at land border, it's going to incur extra time, which we may need then extra drivers, because drivers are limited to the hours they can drive in a day. So most are doing it. A few haulage companies are setting up depots on the other side of the border. I know of some hauliers um, have bought land, have bought operating centres in Dundalk and in the, in, the, in the greater Dublin area, just so that they can flag out. And by flagging out, what means that if, if a haulier, for example, has 20 or 30 trucks. Well, then after next March, they could re-register, take five of those trucks, register them in the Republic, just to cover themselves so they can still operate and provide a service in the Republic. And of course, that makes sense given the fact that there's been significant additional investment in the ports, both in Dublin and I think also coming along in Cork as well. Yeah. So, you know, there will be more transit out of those uh, ports rather than out of line in the future. Yeah, like that can be reflected. Last year, for example, Dublin Port and the Roro service out of Dublin, that grew by 6.1%. Um, meanwhile, in Belfast, the growth was just over 1%. And that, a lot of that's been driven by Northern Irish traffic using the Dublin Hollyhead route, and primarily in the agri-food sector. So what we have, especially in, in the southern half of Northern Ireland, a lot of the companies based in poultry and meat process and agri-foods, uh, to get the goods to distribution centres in the south of England in the quickest possible lead time because lead time and fresh produce is, is vital. Um, they're using the quickest possible route which is the Dublin Holly Head. Um, Dublin port significant investment in the last number of years. The port tunnel made it even quicker to get into the port. 
and we have seven seven rural service providers out of Dublin Port providing a service. So there's the economies of scale there as well. So when you've got a two-hour crossing from Dublin to Hollyhead, and then a dual carriageway from Hollyhead taking you right across to the M6, that's that's vital to companies here, both the exporters and the hauliers. And I know that's a major concern against many companies in the agri-food sector because many have said to me that if there are checks on the border, and especially with agri-food, um, they could face veterinary checks, which on meat is 20% of volume has to be checked and 50% on poultry, is that that could have significant disruption to their supply chains and supplying that vital market in the south of England because simply going via and large strand simply won't make the make the deadlines quick enough. And I imagine the agri-food businesses that uh, have got some of the production facilities in the south will, if they can, they can argue that they are going to finish production in the south and then if their customer base is in the Republic then they will export out of Dublin and Cork straight to mainland continental Europe. Yeah, yeah, it'd be, it'd be the feasible way to do that. And, and we've seen that in the last year. We've seen some companies involved in the agri-food sector where there has been mergers between Northern Irish and, and Republic of Ireland businesses. And of course, you know, there's that history of mergers. And that brings us on to another one of the risks that needs to be mitigated, which is the prospect of a further significant currency value fall in sterling. You know, that if we, if we don't have a decent outcome to the Brexit negotiations, sterling will fall further. And then we've already got one large business in the northwest that's uh, forced into a merger because of the falling the value of sterling and and you know again your members will be potentially quite badly hit by any significant fall in the value of sterling the, fo- the fall in sterling um, will hit us where it hurts us most and that's on fuel yes um, a third of the operating cost for, for a few for a hauler operating a truck today um, over 30% of those costs is fuel related and that's when you consider driver's wages, everything, insurance, it is the fuel that's the biggest burner. Um, and when the UK, the fuel duty, we have the highest rate of fuel duty in the EU at the moment and for per litre you're looking at about 15 cents a litre more expensive to fill up in Northern Ireland than you are in the Republic. So to, to, um, to, to have a, an overall increase in uh, was in the cost of fuel driven by the by the depreciation in sterling and then the high levels of fuel duty that we have here it's just another burden on the haulage industry and it's more an incentive for companies maybe to set up operating centers in the republic mm. and to continue to fuel up as well in the republic when they can because uh, it's difficult to quite work out how this might work but i can't imagine that if we have a hard brexit and a hard border there will be possible for either commercial vehicles or individual passenger vehicles to easily fill up over the border you know as people say in Derry would do as part of their normal weekly life just go across the border fill up and come back again i mean it's difficult to believe especially in the haulage industry that we'd be able to continue to do that there are, there are, um, yeah. It all depends, I suppose, what we're looking at. Mm. At the moment, you know, there, there, there are certain little rules in in Europe um, that are applied. For example, if 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 I'm a Northern Irish haulier and I deliver goods into Turkey, um, I can't fill up. You know, fuel fuel in Turkey, it's almost more expensive to buy water. Um, so you can fill up, but when you re-enter the EU, the EU will check your vehicle and you're only allowed a certain volume of fuel to come back in because they are aware that people would maybe fit extra tanks on the lorries that would fill up as they're leaving Turkey and then those filled tanks with very cheap diesel would then be used to drive them home back to the UK. Um, so there are checks on that. I can't imagine at the moment that being applied here in Northern Ireland. Now, customs do 
some random checks where for example if I'm a haulier in Northern Ireland I can fill up my tanks in the Republic but the, the little niche in the rule is as long as I de don't decant those tanks in the vehicle and put them into a fuel bunker at my site in Northern Ireland it's legal but the moment I drive that lorry home to Belfast or Derry and then take the fuel out of the lorry and put it into a tank that's when I'll face prosecution so I think maybe the status quo might remain on that. And especially initially because there was simply not going to be enough customs officials to deal with all the demands on them if there is a hard Brexit. Yeah exactly and, and I think one, one thing worth noting as well a lot of people um, both you know I suppose especially in government here they say that you know in the event of a no deal that well it'll be up to the EU to to do the checks on the Irish border they that they will do it but we find that a bit disingenuous because any checks will have to be reciprocated on the northern side of the border as well because if the UK wants to go out and strike these great um, trade deals with the likes of the US and China etc well the US will want to ensure that the goods that they agree to supply the UK uh, but that market supply isn't undermined by goods entering the UK from elsewhere without checks. Um, so things like potentially, you know, beef, metals, etc., they won't be allowed to enter Northern Ireland um, in free circulation. That the UK would have to show these other free trade um, agreement um, countries that we're going to strike these deals with that yeah we will check we will um, have quotas on and the tariffs will be applied on EU imports. So I think yeah that we would be faced with checks on either side of the border in the event of going to WTO or no deal. Seamus Lahenny, Freight NI, thank you very much indeed. Paul, two insightful interviews there. Thank you very much for taking the time with them. Is there anything that you took away from those yourself? Is like what would be the main points? The main point is that where I was sitting, I was wondering to what extent the two sets of negotiators were bluffing. They were talking up a hard Brexit and a no-deal Brexit in order to scare the other side into uh, basically making concessions. Now, mm -hmm. both Jane and Seamus didn't really buy into that interpretation of things. So in other words, what appears to be a crisis really is a crisis. Well, thanks again. And thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks for all who took part in this month's podcast and to D Kern for production support as always. So if you have any questions that you'd like Paul to look at, just let us know on Brexit at Hollywelltrust.com. Just fire us on an email and we'll get it sorted. Keep an eye out this week on the Dairy Journal for Paul's Brexit blog. It should appear from Friday. And this podcast, as always, is released and around the 25th of each month. So thanks for listening and we'll speak to you again soon. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell T.